recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the Open Book under the covering title, The Preroma, and it is number three of the series. It is our custom to read a portion of scripture together at this meeting. If you who are listening would like to join us in this, please switch off and read together with us the 38th chapter of the book of Job. Just one word with regard to the reference in verse 31 and 32 in this Job 38. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his seasons, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? That may not speak so much to us, because we no longer live in the open air, we no longer have to find our way over to the South London or to North London by keeping our eye on certain stars and not losing our way. We live an artificial life, it's handed over the counter to us and we are getting very much like the boy who said he didn't want milk from a cow, he liked it better from a dairy. (laughs) But in these early days, when the Pleiades were in a certain position, it was the indication that it was the time to sow your crops. And you can't alter that. You cannot bind it, you cannot stop it, there's no good arguing with it. And then there was a day when Arcturus was in his place with his sons in the heavens, that was the time for reaping. That was only just in case you wondered what on earth all these peculiar words meant. Uh, They go back to the days when the signs of the zodiac were not merely a bit of superstition and sold as lucky charms, but they were really indications of the movement of the seasons through the year. All right, that's as far as we need to go with regard to that for the moment. Now, this is the third of these series, and in the first one, we spent our time looking at the passages in the Gospels where our Saviour introduced into the New Testament for the first time this word pre-Roma, which we find later on is one of the most magnificent words in the vocabulary of Scripture, for it's the very self-same word that he used to indicate a patch or a mending of a tear in a cloth when he spoke of himself that it was well pleasing that in him should all the fullness dwell. The magnificent words that come in Ephesians and Colossians are this very self-same primitive simple word. And then we looked at our second study particularly at the first verse of the book of Genesis. Uh, We may look at that and think, well, there's nothing much there to stop on, let's go on. But we discovered there was much more in it than meets the eye. We discovered that the word beginning didn't merely mean a tick on the calendar of time. For there was no time to tick at the moment, at the beginning. We discovered that when we turn to the other end of the scriptures, and we get to the balancing book, the book of the Revelation, and there's no need for me to spend time going through a long list of parallels to prove that what you have as a beginning in Genesis is coming out as a goal in the Revelation. You get paradise lost in Genesis, you get paradise restored and so on. You get a creation of heaven and earth in the beginning. You have a new heaven and a new earth at the end. You have darkness upon the face of the deep at the beginning. You have no more sea at the end. You have the coming in of sin and death through Adam. You have the going out of sin and death in the Revelation. You have a curse coming in, you have no more curse, oh, it's there, isn't it? 
And so when we discover that the word beginning comes four times in the book of the Revelation, four times only, and every single one of them is a title of Christ, no reference whatever to the beginning of time, you say, what does this mean? You go back on your story and you discover that the very word beginning in the Old Testament is translated first fruits, a figure of first fruits, that the creation of the beginning was only a pledge and a foreshadowing of a creation yet to come. And the lesson of the ages is going to be deemed into us in this study that not in creature strength, but in the strength of a Redeemer is found the stability of God's purpose at the end. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, can be written over the whole plan of the ages. Well now, this evening, we're commencing a consideration of the general layout of our study. You notice on this chart, those of you who have it in front of you, we'll see a series of black lines, very strong black patches. Well, they indicate gaps, apparent breaks in the purpose of God. And that needs to be handled with a certain amount of care and reverence. Because if by speaking about gaps in the purpose of God, we lead the mind of the believer to think that God was caught by surprise, that something went wrong with his plan, that he had to suddenly rush in and rectify it, well, if that's the case, I'm afraid the foundation beneath our feet begins to get a little bit shifty and shaky. Oh no, we can bring chapter and verse over and over again that he will perform all the counsel of his will, that whatever he has determined shall take place and none can hinder him. So the other point of view is that God who made the plan knew the material that he was using and used it purposely that it's a part of the plan to exhibit to all ages that stability is not found merely in creature strength. Stability is found where you least expect it when you're weak and frail and wandering and lost and you turn and find you're all in a redeemer, a mediator and a saviour. You've reached a goal and a place where now you can begin to speak of being indefectible and undestroyable, and all victorious. Now that does not appeal to the mind at first. It's contrary to expectation. It's contrary to expectation to suddenly read in the New Testament that Christ was crucified in weakness. Until you get the other balancing section in the same epistle to the Corinthians, that the very weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, that's the demonstration that's being made. And we're a part of it. One of the things that keeps me going is to know that, because if I look at myself, I could easily come to the conclusion I made a tremendous tragic mistake. Who am I that I should stand here in the city of London and occupy a pulpit in a chapel called the Chapel of the Open Book? But I say to myself, you're just the very person. How's that? Well, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He did the choosing, I didn't. He picked up the earthen vessel. He filled it. And that I believe is a part of a lesson that we need dinned into us over and over again. But it's not an easy one to learn. So that instead of saying there was any slip in the purpose of God, 
The purpose of God was already arranged. That however many slips may come, it would still further the purpose and the plan. Without in any measure making God the author of moral iniquity, he used and chose frailty. Do you remember this? That a creature must necessarily be imperfect. Now you may disagree with me over that. You say, oh no. Any creature that comes from the hand of God is perfect. I agree with you. When you say, you don't. Oh, I said, now we are using words in two different terms. I pick a flower. It may be a perfect specimen. I'm imagining it is. Every petal perfect. Every disposition of its parts complete. You say, there you are. I say, well, wait a minute. Is a man who picked it higher in the scale of creation than the flower he picked? Yes. Well, if he's higher, the other one must be lower. Yes. Well, if it's lower, it's not quite so perfect, is it? No. Well, then every creature has to say, there's someone higher than myself, and God alone is absolutely perfect, and all the rest of us are only relatively so. Well, what about that little bit of imperfection? What about the fact that I'm a man, and I can only go so far as a man, and I cannot reach out so far as one of the principalities and powers, or God himself? That limitation has got to be taken into account. And if the whole purpose of the ages is associated with a man who hasn't even got the strength of an angel, there's every possibility sometimes of the creak and the groan and the collapse, and it's all a part of God's foreknowledge to arrange that he didn't take hold upon angels, but he laid hold upon the seed of Abraham. He passed by the principalities and powers and he picked up Adam. There's one thing about Adam that makes him differ from not only the animal creation in which he forms a part, but of all other creations that are above him. For I believe he's unique in the whole universe of God, in this sense, that he was made in the image and likeness of his maker, and that we never read about any angel, principality, or power at all. And so we begin to see that God knew what he was doing. So when I speak about gas, I'm only saying that God never intended that Adam should be the Redeemer. He intended that the first Adam should be a picture of the last Adam. And that was his office. And all the rest of it was to do with humanity, which failed. Aaron was never intended to be the true high priest. For one thing, he was mortal and had to have a successor, which Christ never has. Christ is not a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who steps into the page of Scripture without father, without mother, without descent, without pedigree. He's just a picture of the Son of God in his office. So we can see these things. Well, now in the first instance, just look at this chart that is before you. And those of you who are um, using the photographic charts that have been sent with the recording, you will not have this little piece attached to it. But on the board, those of you who are in this meeting, you will see that I've put seven steps at the beginning of the chart and seven steps at the end. I'll just explain their purpose in a few words. 
After the record of the creation of heaven and earth in Genesis 1, we have the record of the six days preparation of this earth for man. It does not use the word creation except for the denizens of the sea and for man. When on the third day God said, let the dry land appear, the dry land must have been there beforehand in order that it should appear. And it's a waste of time to try to make the seven days or the six days of preparation of this earth for man and the seventh day rest. It's a waste of time to try to dig into the bowels of the earth and discover all the testimony of geology and try to make it fit one of the days. It was never given for that purpose. If God did nothing more on the first day than say, let there be light, well, nothing would have happened afterwards, for there must have been millions of things necessary beside that one statement. But supposing we look at the story at the beginning and the end, let's go to the other end of the book first to illustrate our point. We get to the book of the Revelation, and there we have John. He's looking forward to a creation that has not yet come. The book of the Revelation at the end of the book says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that hasn't come yet. So John could have no idea of what it was like unless God told him. And he could no, have no idea of the preparation that was necessary to lead to it unless God told him. And if you know the construction of the book of the Revelation, chapter 4 to chapter 21 is completely occupied with seven visions. And they're all pairs in heaven and earth, seven times over. And John at that end is looking up those steps, as it were, the seven steps, to the creation that's yet to come. And Moses at this end is looking up the seven steps to the creation which is past. That's all that we need to mention about that at the moment. We're not scientists here. We're just students of the Word of God. And those two begin and end the story. Well, now we've read together, at the beginning of this meeting, the 38th chapter of the book of Job. And there's one piece there that I want to ask you to consider before we go any further. It's a challenging chapter, especially if people pride themselves on their knowledge of the universe of God. Uh, when the Lord said to Job, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? He might say that to us too. And we should have to say, Well, I wasn't there. And in the next verse, verse but one, verse six, Whereupon are the foundations that are fastened? Now the uh, person who's very, very much inclined to modern scientific teaching, he looks at that with a certain amount of quiz, he said, of course, that's old-fashioned. Nobody believes that there are any foundations beneath the earth. Uh, that's a little bit of primitive stuff that we have to let pass. But by so doing, we may miss the true intention of this passage. I'd like you to notice this. That that word foundation, here, is used by Moses, I think, about 50-odd times when he was writing about the tabernacle. Will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 26, 19? 
Exodus 26, 19. Here it says, And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Now that word socket is the identical word used in Job 38 for the foundations. It must have been used with purpose. And if we are right in believing that Moses is the one who brought the book of Job back from the land when he was there for 40 years in the very vicinity where Job was written, he, he got the word in front of him. And he used it with discretion, but being guided by the Spirit of God, to use the very self-same word that God had used to Job for the foundations on which the earth is resting, for the foundations on which the tabernacle were resting. Well now, in what way do these have some significance? Still in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, verses 12 to 16. 30, 12 to 16. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. And then it says, this they shall give, every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty gears. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. And then it says finally, verse 16, And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So it's atonement money, this silver. Now the next reference, chapter 38 of Exodus, shows you that some of it was devoted to making these sockets under the tabernacle. 38, 25. And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was a hundred talents, and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. Verse 27. And of the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil. A hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Now I believe that that word was chosen by God on purpose. For those who will let God be their teacher. That he's telling us that the world of which we form a part was as it were figured in that tabernacle. He's reminding us that we ought to be far more concerned about the redemptive side of things than a mere arguing and quarrelling about creation. Creation is spoken of just in one chapter of Genesis and the tabernacle occupies chapter after chapter. Heaven and earth is crowded into one chapter and one tiny little tent takes chapter after chapter to give it a place. Because redemption is so much more important than merely understanding the ways of God in creation. Well, if that's the case, this present world is resting upon sockets. Now, I'm not bothering about whether they've got any shape or whether they've got any size. The point is that this present world is conceived of as somewhere in which God is working out a redemptive purpose. Now, if this, is a, if this world is a bit of a tabernacle, uh, it, to complete it, it should not only have sockets underneath, but it should have a curtain above, shouldn't it? 
And of course you get a person who doesn't know his Bible saying, now you're not going to tell me that there's a curtain up there. Say, no I'm not. But I'll let Isaiah chapter 40 tell me just what we are to conceive about this. Chapter 40, Isaiah 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. That's again a little reminder, like it is in Job. Uh, were you there when I laid the foundations, Job? And he had to say, no, Lord. When in your sight, what are you just now? Grasshoppers. That's right, we learn when they're a bit like grasshoppers. It's the other attitude that baffles. Now he goes on. That stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So there we've got now two statements in the scriptures that this earth is conceived of by God when it was prepared for man as adding sockets underneath and a curtain above in which God could dwell. Well I think that's enough for those who believe God means what he says that the present earth which is to pass away just the same as a tent is rolled up and packed away when you're done with it the present earth is likened to a tabernacle and redemptive purposes is they are the ones that are most important. Well now there's another feature that we want to make sure. We've said earlier that when we speak about gaps in the purpose of God, there is no reflection upon the wisdom of God. It's only the fact that God has purposely chosen frail and weak instruments to carry out this mighty purpose in order that at long last, in the ages to come, Every one of us shall have learned thoroughly the lesson that it doesn't depend upon creature strength, but it depends upon the redeeming love of God that this universe will ever stand solid, indefectible and everlasting. So let's think about some of the gaps. I won't go into them intimately. Uh, there are many that will come to your mind that I shall not mention and some that I speak of may be fresh to you, I don't know. Go back for a minute to the prophet Hosea without turning to the scriptures. In the third chapter, God says to the people that the children of Israel should abide many days without a king and without a prince, without a priest and without a sacrifice and yet afterwards, and long afterwards, they shall return unto the Lord and David their king in the latter days. So there's a gap. They've got to sit and mark time and wait like a segregated woman as Osea was dealing with one, in the law, if a woman played fast and loose with the marriage bond, and she was taken back, she wasn't taken back immediately, but was segregated for a time. And God said, that's what you've got to be, and that's where Israel have been. There's a gap in God's dealings with Israel. But he said to them, for a period you shall be called low army, not my people. And for that self-same period, God says, and I will not be your God. Now that's gospel truth. That's just as true as John 3.16. That for the present moment, until Israel look upon him whom they pierced, they are not his people, and God is not their God. It's no good you going to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for he's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just now, he says so. But what he is, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which to us is infinitely more wonderful still. Well then you remember, we have at Acts 28, another gap, a similar one to the one in Hosea. Because the children of Israel there with their representatives, 
met the Apostle Paul in Rome and he occupied a whole day going through the Scriptures with them and when they still manifested that they were obdurate and unrepentant, he quoted Isaiah chapter 6 for the last time and then said the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and that's where the door opens for you and me. Or again we may think of the testimony of our Lord when he started his public ministry in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. He returned to the synagogue after being absent for some time and as his custom was, he stood up for to read. And it was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he found the place where he was written and he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But instead of going on reading the whole chapter as everyone would expect, he read one verse and one sentence and shut the book and sat down. And the reason was that there was a gap. There's no gap in the prophet Isaiah. In the prophet Isaiah it says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. No gap. Not even a comma. No space. And yet our Saviour stopped. He read the words, the acceptable year of our Lord, but he did not say the day of vengeance of our God because he was going to say, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The day of salvation was there and the day of vengeance is yet to come. So what is only just a comma in the English version version is 1900 years gap in history. Or again, you get Peter speaking of the prophets who after they had the message given to them and wrote it down, they searched what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that was in them did signify when it spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. Well, there's no gap in the prophets when they speak of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. No gap. But we know there's all this present interval between when Christ died and when he yet comes to be glorified. So, over and over again, these gaps are evident. One more will be sufficient. In Daniel, the ninth chapter. Daniel was writing roughly about 400 years before Christ. And he had a message sent to him by the Lord that within a period of 70 times 7, that's 490 years, the whole purpose of God concerning Israel would be brought to a conclusion. Well, 490 years, that means to say that it's all over and finished long ago. But that isn't so. Because he leads you to the time when Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. And then there comes a stop. And we are taken then into the book of the Revelation where the day of the Lord dawns to find the last sentence of the book of Daniel. So I think you see with me that you already know quite a number of instances in Scripture where these gaps occur. Well now the first gap that we have to consider is one that we've considered before in these meetings. This one here. This piece is the primary heaven and earth about which we learn very little afterwards. We're going to discover in the book of Genesis that there's a temporary heaven which is called the firmament but we'll come to that in its place presently. But here we have in verse 2 a gap 
and we go right on to the end, before the new heaven and the new earth, there is another gap. They balance. Now I'm conscious that quite a number of the friends who come to this meeting, they have been very seriously through this question of how to translate Genesis 1 verse 2. And I have a great reluctance to repeat myself. And yet, what are we to do? The meeting this evening is not only for this evening, but as you know, it is being now, at this very minute, recorded. And this recording will be going to friends in America and various other parts of the world, and it would be very, very wrong on my part to say, well, there's a gap, friends, here, and I'm not going to fill it up, because we know all about it. So, you have to say to yourself, well, I know what's going to be said, but will you say to yourself, am I not a fortunate person to know what is going to be said? Because there are a number who have never heard it. So, we'll have to give Genesis 1 verse 2 at least some consideration. I'm going to say to those who are using this recording, that if you want a very full exposition of what the meaning of Genesis 1 verse 2 is, you will find it in the series which we've already recorded on Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, where we are told that the church of the mystery was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, we read about foundation. Chapter 2, we read about foundation. But there are two very different words. I'll write them on the board. In chapter 1, the word foundation is that word. In chapter 2, I'll say that over again for the recording's sake. In chapter 1, the word before the foundation of the word uses the word katabodhi. In chapter 2, when it says built upon the foundation, it uses the word temelion. And it doesn't matter what you know about Greek, you know that that word and that word are very, very different. Now, what is this word katabodic? When it's used in a verbal form, the apostle uses it himself as an earthen vessel, cast down, but not destroyed. That's that word, katabello. Cast down. And if you know anything about medicine and the functions of the human body, you know that metabolism is divided up into two parts. Anabolism and catabolism. Now, I'm no doctor. But to put it very crudely, about an hour, or nearly two hours ago, I had a very light meal. And that is a little bit of the anabolism. Ah! And now... I'm speaking to you, cannibalism's going on, it's been broken down. I'm using it up quicker than you're using yours. Well, that's good enough. And if you ask your doctor about it, he'll tell you that cannibalism means a breaking down process. What do you say now? We were chosen in him before, what should we put, the overthrow of the world. Yes. Is there such a thing? Well, now we've got to look and see. Genesis 1 verse 2. I would like you to open your Bibles at this passage, even though you know it by heart, in case there's one in this meeting who has never realised the change there is in printing a very simple word, was. If you're reading the authorised version, the first word was, 
in verse 2 is in ordinary type. The second word was in verse 2 is in italics. Now there must be a reason why the printers went out of their way even to print the word was in two different types. He didn't do it for fun. He did it on purpose. And the reason is this. That strictly speaking, in the Hebrew language, there is no verb to be. The verb to be, am and is and was, is always implied and never written. But if you have a verb, it's not the verb to be, it's the verb to become. Here's the same word in Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And you can get it again in other forms when you have, for instance, in the fourth chapter and the fourteenth verse of this Genesis and it shall come to pass. Not it was or is, but it shall come to pass. It is always consistently the verb to become. So shall we now put that right then? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth became without form and void. It's not that God created it like that, but something took place to bring this about. Well, now, the next thing for us to do is this. There is a, a principle of interpretation, I think, even though you may know it, we'll turn to it to make sure. I would commend it to every one of us with regard to the study of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That is essential. We must use the words of God in the way that God has used them. So if we can find that God has used the words which come in Genesis 1 verse 2 somewhere else, it's up to us to consider the use of them before we frame any meaning. But before we leave this epistle to the Corinthians, you may remember uh, that in the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 3, we we'll just turn to it, Paul gives us a hint about Genesis 1 verse 2. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, I said 3, chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's in this very context that he uses the word catabalo, in verse 9. But the point is that he's there alluding to a period when God commanded the light to shine out of darkness as an illustration of the way in which God has illuminated our darkness. Well, our darkness was moral. 
And therefore, if he's alluding to Genesis 1 verse 2, verse 2 was not the way in which God created heaven and earth, but the way it became after something happened. Well, now what did happen? Well, how are we to know? First of all, how did Moses use this particular word, which we have here, without form and void? If you'll look at Deuteronomy 32, you can get a verse where Moses himself has used it. It's good to see an author using a word himself. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. He found him in a desert land and in the waste, howling wilderness. Well, there's the word which is used in Genesis 1, verse 2. Without form. A waste. And he adds the word howling. Wilderness. Now, God did not create heaven and earth as a waste, howling wilderness. You say to me, how do you know? Were you there? No, no, no. I have to say with Job, no, I wasn't there. But I've got a book that tells me about this by someone who was. Would you like to hear what he says? Isaiah 45, verse 18. I wasn't there. And friends, you weren't there, so it's no good you bothering and barging into me about it. But here was someone who was there. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus said the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. That's the very word in Genesis 1 verse 2. It's made an adverb, but it should remain, he created it not a waste. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. So there's a definite statement that whatever the word means in Genesis 1 verse 2, God says he didn't create it like that. It became like that. There was a fall evidently because we discover the word is used in the context of judgment. Now Isaiah 24. Here's another context where we have this particular word used in Genesis 1. Isaiah 24. Listen to these Two verses, 24.1, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Verse 3, The land shall be utterly emptied, and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken the word. Now look at verse 10. The city of confusion is broken down. That word confusion is the word we've got in Genesis 1 verse 2, without fall. So that's the context of this particular expression. Well, now we take it further. Chapter 34 of the book of Isaiah. And in order to make sure of this chapter, we're going to read a few verses. I'm going to ask you to decide for yourself whether this is speaking about creation or whether it's speaking about judgment. Is it how God intended it should be or is this how God will have to treat it because of sin and failure? Well, let's let it speak for itself. Isaiah 34, 1 Come near ye nations to hear and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation 
of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. In one verse is packed indignation, fury, utter destruction and slaughter. That's not creation. That's judgment. It says in verse 4, almost the words that Peter repeats when he speaks about that black patch that comes at the other end of the story, over there, before the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 4, And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall roll, be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. Peter says, A day is coming when there shall be, be this dissolution, that it shall part, depart away in fire. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So now we've got the, the first essential pattern. The first heavens and earth, and then something happening. A dissolution. Then we have a dissolution at the other end, and the last heavens and earth. There's the beginning, and there's the end, and all this coming in between. But we haven't finished this chapter yet. Verse 8. It is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Well, it says so, friends. We needn't search any further. This is vengeance, not creation. Now then, verse 11 gives you the words without form and void. In order that they may come in, keep in your mind, I'll write the two words on the board. This is the word without form. Told you. That's the word and void. Strange sounding words. Tohu and Bohu. Those of you who were here when I gave the lantern lecture on the tour and witness in America will remember that I told you I had to live in a suitcase. Packing, travelling, speaking, day after day. And very, very soon I ceased to call it my, my case. I called it my chaos because I was pushing in and lugging out all the time articles of clothing and doing the best I could. And the friend who was with me, his travelling case was just about the same. So, mine was called Tohu, and his was called Bohu. Well, that's only just in passing. Now, in this verse 11, we have the two words. Those two words, Tohu and Bohu, without form and void. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. Now, they are unclean birds in the Levitical law. And the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. The owl that hoots and the raven. You remember the raven whose cry heralded in the ears of Lady Macbeth the murder that was about to be committed. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan unto my battlement, she says. And here it is, the raven. Well, we're, we're getting on then. We've got the cormorant and the bittern and the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They're the two words that come in Genesis 1 verse 2. Now, supposing you're that type of person who says, well, I don't believe it. Well, that's happened before. So we'll look at Jeremiah, the fourth chapter. Because you have no need to have a translation here. The very words are used in our version. Jeremiah 4, verse 7. The lion is come up 
from his thicket. And the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate. And thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. This is preparation. This is not creation, is it? Not when a lion goes up and starts acting like that. Now then, this is how Jeremiah continues in verse 23. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. There's your very words of Genesis 1 verse 2. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. I don't think I need to prove any more that where you get these words, without form and void, you get judgment. Now, of course, our next subject is, what brought about the judgment? Well, it certainly wasn't the fall of man, for man wasn't there. Man wasn't created yet. But we do have statements in the scriptures, in more places than one, that by pride fell the angels, and that Satan is a fallen being. So that when we read Hebrews chapter 2, and it says that Christ laid hold not upon the angels, but upon the seed of Abraham. Or in Hebrews 2, when it says, Unto the angels hath not he submitted the world to come, whereof we speak. There are indications, if we gather them all together, that there was a fall long before man. And if man was chosen, or if some of our man kind were chosen before the foundation of the world to occupy those super heavenly places where principalities and powers have their residence, you can understand that those fallen principalities and powers with Satan at their head would immediately look upon them as those that were enemies and seek to destroy them. And he did. He did his utmost in the Garden of Eden. He did his utmost with Israel. He did his utmost against the Christ of God. And we are warned in our epistle that we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers, with spiritual wickednesses. Now, here, the world rulers of this darkness. So we've looked at this evening, first of all, the fact that this world in which we find ourselves is likened by God himself to a tabernacle. That means to say that we must be more concerned with a redemption in Christ than with other, any other subject. All the other subjects are extraneous. Whether there's anybody on the Mars or anything to say, well, there's all eternity to find out if it matters. What matters most is that we find ourselves in Christ and we're redeemed by his blood and we are made fit for glory. And that will take most of our time and our witness. Then we discovered that there had been gaps in this working out of God's purpose, but they were all known to him. He wasn't taken by surprise. In fact, that's where the word mystery comes in. The mystery of the present dispensation is hid by God and never revealed in the Old Testament till Israel failed. And then when it looked as though the, the evil one had put a spoke in the wheel of God and stopped his purpose, then he revealed that he had a secret purpose. And he revealed it to Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for us Gentiles. And that's where we rejoice to come in 
and this is our peculiar testimony in this chapel. And then we've been looking particularly at Genesis 1 verse 2. The first of the gaps that have to be followed by something that fills the gap. Now the filling of the gap was the six days creation, the seven day rest in which man appears. Now instead of calling man and the present creation a fullness, our word pleroma, we call him a filling. You understand that's a bit less, isn't it? It's a sort of a stopgap, a filling. God never intended Adam to be the redeemer. He was only a shadow, only a figure, only a picture. And it was a frail one at that. He was a filling. And then, being put in a place of delight and tested, he failed and comes another gap. The expulsion from the garden and the pledge of the cherubim. But the expulsion from the garden and the pledge of the cherubim would have to occupy our attention at another one of these meetings. We've got to, to go into other matters before we reach Genesis 3 and that we reserve for our study, God willing, next time.